What does a right of publicity mean in the digital age, and why do we care? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. Right of publicity is a right of an individual to control the commercial use of one's identity, such as name, image, likeness, and other personal characteristics. This right, which is recognized by the majority of states in the United States under common law or by statute, protects celebrities, influencers, as well as individuals who do not ordinarily earn income from their name or likeness, and in certain cases, even people who are deceased. However, the scope of protection varies widely, and it's often not clear under what circumstances consent is required and what is considered to be valid or adequate consent, especially in the increasingly digital world that we live in. Let me start with two examples. An underground streetwear company sees an Instagram post of a celebrity wearing its hoodie and regrams the post without seeking permission from the celebrity. The same company runs an advertising campaign that seeks out Instagram posts of ordinary people wearing its hoodie and regrams the post with the branded hashtag, all without seeking permission from the featured individuals. Is the company in either or both scenarios running a risk of violating the right of publicity of the individuals featured in the post? To discuss these complex issues, I have with me today Nat Bach, who is an entertainment litigation partner in Manette's Los Angeles office. Nat has a broad commercial litigation practice and specializes in representing clients in the media, entertainment, and technology industries on a range of matters, including contract disputes, intellectual property, First Amendment, class action, and the metaverse and other emerging technology matters. Nat has represented and counseled numerous clients on right of publicity matters and has at least one such matter in active litigation at the moment. Welcome, Nat. Thanks, Poe. Very glad to be here. I think most people generally understand the celebrities, the traditional kind, as well as social media influencers will expect to be paid for the use of their name and likeness in advertising, and that a brand will need to obtain written consent from the celebrities to feature them in the brand's ad campaign. This is a first example I discussed in my intro. What many people don't know, however, is that right of publicity laws can also protect non-celebrities, like those referenced in my second example. What would you say is the universe of the individuals that right of publicity laws protect? And does the protection differ for different types of individuals? Well, first of all, we tend to think of the right of publicity as being celebrity-centric, and there are good reasons for that. Companies tend to want to associate with celebrities or influencers that will burnish their brand and who are known quantities to the public or their buying public. But right of publicity laws generally protect individuals regardless of their celebrity status or their ability to monetize their name and likeness. So even private citizens have publicity rights under most state laws. That includes social media users, as well as companies, employees, and customers. There are differences, of course, between the rights and the value of those rights that celebrities and normal citizens have. And that may factor in, in terms of the value of their right, what they could sell it for, and for litigation purposes, for damages. One notable difference is that post-mortem rights are not generally available to ordinary people, but celebrities and individuals who have established value in their identity at the time of their death may have descendable post-mortem rights that can be controlled and licensed or refuse to be licensed by heirs, trusts, or other successors in interest. 
Speaking of postmortem rights, that's an area where we see quite a few differences in ways states recognize and protect these rights. So how do various states deal with the publicity right of a deceased person? And how do they differentiate between those who are entitled to protection and those who are not? Well, and, and the issue has become even more important with the increase of technology making available post-mortem and holographic images, as we've seen in concert footage. And oftentimes you'll have gating fights between the heirs of certain celebrities and brands or companies that they've sued for unauthorized use just about where that celebrity was domiciled at the time of their death because of the difference in the rights that are available to them in, say, California or New York versus other states. That's played out historically over decades in several high-profile disputes. But we have new laws in New York. About two years ago in 2020, New York's right of publicity law was updated specifically to account for and better cover the rights of, of decedents. And California equally protects the rights of uh, the postmortem rights of celebrities that have generated value in that right during their lifetime. So in New York, for example, deceased personality, that term is defined and means any deceased natural person domiciled in the state of New York whose name, voice, signature, photograph, or likeness has commercial value at the time of his or her death or because of his or her death, which is an interesting second part of that clause. And in California, you have a similar limitation and similar definition. Again, the commercial value existing at the time of his or her death or because of his or her death. Those laws, it's not surprising that the postmortem laws are focused in California and New York, and there have been lobbying efforts on behalf of celebrities and Hollywood writ large in the California state legislature, which was largely responsible for the passage of those postmortem rights years ago. Now that we've established who is protected by a right of publicity laws, let's go to the next question of what. What is protected by these laws? We'll hear it defined in different ways these days. Right of publicity, name, image, and likeness. There seems to be, I think, a trend, especially in the NCAA, in light of the ability for amateur and college athletes to now monetize their name, image, and likeness, or NIL, to be used in connection with the sports world. But really, it is shorthand for the right of publicity that applies to others. And what does it protect? It's state-specific, and it may depend upon the statutory right in a particular state or the common law right in a particular state. It can often be broader than many individuals realize. One of the broadest applications of the right of publicity is to the extent it protects an individual's persona, which is a catch-all umbrella-like term that really feels like the penumbra of one's image and identity and likeness and extends well beyond what you or I might otherwise believe to be a likeness of an individual. And it's really a cautionary tale for companies and for brands when they're considering, especially in the digital age, how I can use characteristics, avatars, or other indicia that seem to indicate or suggest famous individuals in particular. For example, using just a first name of a person like Nat or Nate is generally okay since there are lots of Nats and Nates in the world, and the first name by itself is not enough to identify a person. But if you were to say Johnny in the context of, let's say, here's Johnny, that might get you into pretty big trouble. It's funny you mentioned Johnny. There was a particular case about portable toilets in California and Johnny Carson taking umbrage with the use of his catchphrase, uh, here's Johnny, in connection with those products. 
But you're right. And one of the more interesting early applications of the persona question is the Vanna White case in the Ninth Circuit, in which Vanna White had sued based on an advertiser and a company's use of a robot in a blonde wig who approximated Vanna White's role in standing in front of a tiled board like she does on Wheel of Fortune. And it was creative. It was possibly transformative. Is it over the line in terms of a First Amendment protected activity, or does it raise this concern about the appropriation of one's persona? And the Ninth Circuit in that instance, interpreting California common law, held that it was, in fact, an appropriation of her persona. And so when we think about persona, what is it? Well, it could be a blonde robot, as long as that blonde robot evokes a particular individual. And when we think about that in the context of digital advertising with the metaverse, avatars, the explosion that we see of NFTs standing in for individuals on social media platforms, what will our identity be in the future and what will stand in for a photo of us or our name? And if individuals, whether famous or not, can create such a public tie between an avatar that may not resemble them or might, and their true self, you know, we could see instances where the persona or even the name image or likeness gets extended to those digital expressions. In fact, as I understand it, the relatively new amendments to the New York law that you mentioned earlier specifically protects the use of a deceased person's digital replica. Yeah, New York has had protections for right of publicity for over a century. But more recently has been focused on protecting postmortem rights, and that was the impetus for this law, along with what has gotten a lot of coverage in political circles in the past few years, deepfakes, and concerns particularly in New York about the rise of pornographic deepfakes and the ways in which they could be used, including for deceased individuals. And so the comments that we heard around the time of the enactment of New York's new law really highlighted the concerns as it pertains to deepfakes. So when Cuomo signed the bill in November of 2020, he enacted a law that, quote, protects a deceased performer's digital replica in expressive works to protect against persons or corporations from misappropriating professional performance. And as it relates to deepfakes, so far they've been relatively crude, but we can easily imagine a future in which they will not be. And we think of them being used or misused in the political context, but they might also be misused in the corporate context for commercial advertising purposes, and also as really to invade someone's privacy. And that was the concern with pornographic deepfakes with respect to this law. And one of the biggest proponents of the New York law and the changes was the Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA. And you have them on the one hand raising these valid concerns about how the image and the postmortem image of guild members and others might be used. And that has come up against the concerns of other stakeholders in the industry, including the MPAA, which voiced concerns about whether or not this would restrict the ability of content creators to tell their stories. And so we see this tension come up time and again in connection with litigation, whether it's in California or New York or elsewhere, about what are the lines? How do you promote free expression and the ability to create expressive works, while on the other hand, protecting individuals from misuse of their persona or trampling on their privacy rights? And clearly, New York, in enacting the law, had in mind the privacy rights of deceased individuals and the impact that that would have on families and heirs. 
Let's talk about that further in terms of the limits of right of publicity laws and the tension between these laws and the First Amendment. It's really at the heart of it. And we see courts, I would not say struggle, but we see courts engage in analyses, particularly at the pleading stage and at the summary judgment stage, about when the First Amendment trumps the ability of individuals to maintain privacy, defamation, right of publicity claims, and also claims brought under the Lanham Act for false endorsement or trademark infringement, for example, and when those rights or privacy interests prevail. So the seminal right of publicity case that the U.S. Supreme Court considered in 1977 that many practitioners will be familiar with is the Zucchini case. And that was an instance where a performer's entire routine had essentially been co-opted, the Supreme Court found, by a news organization that broadcasted the performance in total. It didn't use short clips, but broadcast the entirety of the performance that he would otherwise sell access to and had commercial value. And so that was an example of a balancing test that the court had to engage in. And we see how fact-specific these inquiries are time and again. And I think if there's one of the overarching lessons that I'd like to leave people with here today is that coming up with hard and fast rules about the limits of the right of publicity versus the First Amendment and versus creative expression, whether in the commercial or non-commercial context, are difficult. They're very fact-specific. They depend on the rights that are being asserted and the value in the persona by the individual, the extent of the advertisement or use of that individual's persona. A well-known case in the Seventh Circuit was the Michael Jordan versus Jewel Foods uh, Number case. Number 23, the famous, infamous 23. The infamous 23. And in that case, the Seventh Circuit, in a really interesting academic decision that explores the limits of economic and non-economic speech, discussed that around the time of Jordan's induction into the Hall of Fame, Sports Illustrated was putting out a commemorative edition, and they offered a local grocery chain advertising space on the inside cover or back cover of the magazine. And the chain congratulated Jordan on his induction into the Hall of Fame, but did so in a way that the Seventh Circuit found had crossed the line from simply congratulating and promoting their brand. And they took out an ad. And the Seventh Circuit specifically discussed what I think is a common misinterpretation of the right of publicity, which is whether it, quote unquote, proposes a commercial transaction. We think about that a lot. And you hear folks think a lot about, well, I'm not asking someone to give me money in exchange for this particular advertisement. I'm not selling a product. So why can't I do the following with the image? And Here, the court specifically held that there was a, quote, unmistakable commercial function enhancing the brand in the minds of consumers. So the ability to trade on goodwill and to burnish the goodwill of companies and brands by reference to others who have their own goodwill, like Michael Jordan, was first and foremost in the minds of the judges on the panel. And really, I think, is persuasive in terms of how we need to think about how brands promote themselves, especially in the modern age. This was a case that was decided in 2014 in an advertisement that came out in 2009 or 2010. But the lessons are even truer today when the association between celebrities, influencers, or even members of the public, Joe off the street, and their association with a particular brand can be very important for helping to enhance the goodwill of companies and their products.
We know that right of publicity laws specifically require consent when using an individual's persona, as we discussed. But what does it mean to get consent? And how do you get adequate consent? And do you need consent all the time? You know, it really ties into what we were talking about earlier about the First Amendment. To the extent that one believes one has a very good First Amendment defense because of newsworthiness or other reasons, consent may not be necessary and it may not be practical for a particular company, client, filmmaker, or individual to obtain. But look, the first principle about getting consent is really the ideal. And the more specific the consent one obtains, the better. Obtaining blanket multi-use consent can come about via detailed negotiations by sophisticated parties, and we often see that. And the time to negotiate without the pressures of rushing something to market can benefit both sides to think about the scope of the use and the scope of the consent that they need to provide. But parties often don't have the luxury of that time. They want to capitalize on the fast pace of trending social media, or perhaps there's never even an opportunity to have a back and forth discussion could be in connection with filming or photographing in public places where it would be impossible or impracticable to obtain releases from every passerby. And so that's why we'll all be familiar with the leaflets that have been left on our doorstep or in a public park when we've crossed through that filming is ongoing and you've consented to appear in the background of the film by your presence. I think there can be a question about whether those are valid in all circumstances, but it's about a baseline of protection that would help filmmakers and would help companies insulate themselves to the extent possible because it would be impossible to get releases from every passerby in a public place, especially when one is filming in an area like that. So it's going to be important for licensees and users of publicity rights to think about what they can obtain under the circumstances. You don't want to add so much friction. And it's difficult for a litigator to take off their hat and say, don't get the consent. But as as a... (laughs) As a practical matter, there's a risk analysis that has to be undertaken in circumstances like this about what are we going to lose in terms of the branding opportunity by seeking watertight, a three-page long release versus, oh, look, someone on Instagram has used our product and tagged us in their post. Their post is public. We'd like to feature them. How are you going to interact with that individual? You're going to interact with them maybe via a direct message. Yes, that is in fact how advertisers often get consent from social media users. But this type of consent is usually limited, and there is danger in relying on this approach when engaging in marketing campaigns. As an advertising lawyer, I'm constantly fielding questions from my clients about how you can get consent in the context of social media quickly with minimal risk. Generally, I would say the more limited the scope of the consent, the easier and faster it will be to get it. The key is determining the purpose for which you need consent. Getting consent via a direct message may be fine for just retweeting a post, but it's probably not sufficient if you were to repurpose the post and put it in an ad. Right. Just picking up off the social media example, what is a company's stock release for a direct message? Do they have one? Is that appropriate in all circumstances? And if you put too much verbiage in that, are you going to scare away or lose the opportunity to collaborate with a customer, most likely, and somebody who is perhaps hoping to attract the attention of a brand? Uh, We see that oftentimes, that rush of dopamine that someone gets by having their tweet or their story featured or liked by those who have greater followings. So, you know, on the one hand, you want to give companies and brands opportunities to create connections with their consumers and promote themselves via those oftentimes very organic 
and very trustworthy relationships and interactions. It's the organic nature of those, whether it's a diaper brand that features a baby or whether it is an influencer applying makeup can, can really be powerful. So finding that middle ground about obtaining sufficient consent and protection while also enabling the business to carry out its function is one of the difficulties that in-house lawyers and in-house business folks and outside counsel, when we're collaborating, having those discussions face all the time. And I've encountered situations and seen instances where initially folks are very happy to have their post, their likeness, their story told by others and featured more widely, only to have sort of remorse and regrets later on, maybe because they overshared, maybe because they felt like it was too much of a window into their lives. And so protecting oneself against those recriminations and against that regret and remorse that those individuals may have, even if the damages would be low, is critical because otherwise you're buying yourself a headache. So Nat, why do we care about right of publicity laws? Why does it matter? What is the potential liability for violating these laws? Yeah, well, it is critical to be thinking about that. And even in the instance where we are talking about individuals who don't have a lot of value in their name or their likeness, just the headache to litigate these issues in court or the time it takes away from business functions to deal with individuals who feel that they were taken advantage of, rightly or wrongly, can be significant and have have real costs, operational costs, as well as monetary costs to companies. But from the damages standpoint, the statutory provisions of state right of publicity laws specify the types of damages that are available, and they are typically very protective of that right. So for example, California's statutory civil code section 3344 states that violators of the right of publicity are liable for, quote, any damages sustained by the person or persons injured as a result thereof. So there we have the ability for the plaintiff to establish their damages and for celebrities and individuals who might be commanding thousands of dollars or millions millions of dollars per post, per campaign, the damages could be significant. And it won't always necessarily take an expert witness to substantiate those damages if in fact there are precedents of other deals that those celebrities and influencers have entered into. But, you know, it goes beyond the actual damages. That statute also provides that the any person who violated the section shall be liable, quote, in an amount equal to the greater of $750. Okay, that doesn't seem like a lot or actual damages suffered and any profits from the unauthorized use that are attributable to the use and are not taking into account in computing actual damages. So you have this force multiplier in, in effect within the statute. And just to show you how protective the statute is of the rights holder, the measure of proof, the burden of proof is not put squarely on the plaintiff in such instances. To establish profits, the statute provides that the injured party are required to present proof, quote, only of the gross revenue attributable to such use. And the person who violated this section is required to prove his or her deductible expenses. And so you see in which the way in which the pie is, is large there, and it puts a lot of the burden on, on the defendant in a circumstance like that. Of course, it doesn't stop there, right? That's not, that's not <laughs> the only bad news. Punitive damages are available, and the prevailing party can obtain, shall also be entitled to attorney's fees and costs. So when enterprising plaintiff's lawyers are thinking about what types of claims they want to bring and where they want to bring them, they're often looking for statutes that provide an attorney's fees hook. 
and California's, for example, does. So that on the one hand, that statutory provision is in contrast to California's common law right of publicity or right of misappropriation. And so I think it's important to recognize and to think that there are, there's not just one bite at the apple for plaintiffs here. And that means that there's not just one claim or cause of action that potential defendants need to be worried about. We have statutory rights that vary from state to state. We have common law rights in those states, which can vary not only a misappropriation type of theory, but also unfair competition laws, state to state, California's unfair competition law, most practitioners over there are familiar with, 17200, provides other rights and remedies. And then there's the Lanham Act as well. But when we're thinking about damages, just to take California's common law right, for example, that can provide other types of damages, but also that could be harder for plaintiffs to establish. So one of my favorite cases when thinking about this common law right is a case from the early 90s about a surfer who was featured in a news report without his express authorization. The news report was about surfing culture in in Southern California, for which uh, we are rightly famous. And the California Court of Appeal distinguished the difference between the right of publicity in California, which focuses on, quote, commercially exploitable opportunities with the, quote, appropriation of the name and likeness that brings injury to the feelings that concerns one's peace of mind, and that is mental and subjective. Emotional. Emotional, right? This is the Dora versus Frontline video case. And that type of damage, on the one hand, provides concerns for defendants that even to the extent that the use is seemingly innocuous in terms of the actual damages that it might put someone out of pocket, they're opening up the emotional distress can of worms. And that will implicate expert testimony. And it will also enable plaintiffs in certain instances to plead damages when they would otherwise be difficult to establish. So it's important to remember that in that case, the plaintiff did not win. He lost because of the newsworthiness and public interest in the subject matter of that television program. So again, we've talked about the limits of the rights of publicity and privacy when they come up against the First Amendment. And that was a circumstance where the First Amendment prevailed. We all know that when you put something on social media, you can't really delete it. It sort of stays there forever. So what if a brand knows that there may have been problems in the past? How far back do they have to go to clean up their digital footprint to make sure that they're mitigating all right of publicity risk? So again, like everything with the right of publicity, it's extraordinarily fact dependent and it's state dependent. And we see different limitations periods for different states, of course, California and New York, other states, and then the Lanham Act famously has no specific statute of limitations in it. The Lachey's defense that gets raised looks to analogous state laws to borrow appropriate limitations, period. But to the concern about historical uses and it being available on social media feeds, on the internet, in commerce more generally, the question really generally, and I have my California hat on when I think about some of these issues, but comes down to when it was first put into commerce and whether there's been a quote unquote republication. It's this first publication type of concept that we think about in the defamation context. And so There's a seminal case in California called the Kristoff case that involved advertising that featured a male model's face on coffee products. And he brought a claim and there was a battle over the statute of limitations and whether he had known about this use in commerce. And there were factual questions raised about whether and to what extent 
that use had been broadened or changed over time, separate and apart from the original use. And so this has all sorts of lessons for modern digital media. If you've left a, and again, it's state dependent, but if you've left a post up, let's stipulate that there's a social media posting that violates an individual's right of publicity. If that happened outside of any applicable limitations period, well, the poster should have some measure of comfort. But what if they repost or republish, retweet, otherwise feature that in new content on their social media feed or otherwise? That is the type of circumstance. Or tag. Those are the types of circumstances that could reanimate the issue and give rise to a new limitations period and start the clock over again. Now, you have a question about whether you'd be able to dig back into the past for damages purposes, and you might not be able to, but certainly it being out there, and if there's affirmative acts taken by that same content holder, perhaps not somebody else who's unaffiliated, could that reanimate the question and start the clock running all over again? When you're talking about right of publicity issues, you also have to talk about the Lanham Act. So let's talk about the differences and similarities. What are your thoughts on that? The Lanham Act and the state laws, both statutory and common law, all reside on the menu of available options for plaintiff's attorneys and for defense and company counsel to be thinking about when thinking about the right of publicity and the right of privacy. And there's a few differences from a 10,000-foot view. The Lanham Act, Section 43A, is focused on consumer confusion and the source of the goods or as to an endorsement and whether there's a falsity in connection with that particular endorsement or use. So for the right of publicity, it's really more about protecting the property right or privacy right, depending on how you conceive of that. And in the Lanham Act, more about protecting the consuming public against confusing and false uses of a name, image, or likeness in the advertising context. So we've seen right publicity cases that feature the kitchen sink. We've had plaintiffs and celebrities that have borrowed from the whole menu of available options state law, right of publicity claims, common law, privacy claims, and Lanham Act claims. For example, the Ariana Grande versus uh, Forever 21 case. That was a particularly interesting case where the clothing manufacturer used a lookalike of Ariana Grande, and she sued, claiming that it was seeking to evoke her persona and to tread on the goodwill of her persona to the benefit of the brand. Another example was Tom Waits versus Frito-Lay. This happened 30 years ago, but that was an example where a look-alike or a sound-alike of the famously raspy, deep-voiced Waits had been used for purposes of advertising. And his assertion was that the advertising campaign with the sound-alike voice violated his right and the advanced Lanham Act claim there as well. So in thinking about the overall differences between Lanham Act and right of publicity, in addition to the consumer confusion point for the Lanham Act, we're thinking about falsity. Right of publicity claims don't require falsity. Lanham Act claims do. It's sort of the heart of the false endorsement concept and the connection in the consumer's mind about an endorsement that was not actually given. And then thinking about the First Amendment, the analyses under the Lanham Act can be a little more complicated. And a little more actually protective, I think, in the First Amendment space gives companies and defendants a little more leeway to argue that their conduct is protected by the First Amendment. And you see those types of arguments made more often. Then there are also strategic differences. What state you want to file in? What venue you want to file in? And the Lanham Act provides a more familiar 
broader body of case law for defendants, plaintiffs, and courts nationwide. It's a federal law versus state law. Absolutely. And, you know, there are some states that have relatively undeveloped bodies of law with respect to the right of publicity. And so allowing Lanham Act claims and the body of law there to inform the court's determinations can impose hopefully some consistency and familiarity for the litigants and help them see the road ahead. There's certainly so much more to discuss in these issues, but we are out of time. Following the tradition of this podcast, I would like to ask you to provide one parting tip as to how brands can mitigate risk when using a person's name or likeness in advertising. Well, this is where you, uh, you try to balance, to find the perfect balance, as you say, between uh, what a litigator might want in terms of perfect consent and what is practical. But for brands, for advertisers, what I would say is ask yourself, are there individuals, voices, avatars connected to real individuals or other suggestive characteristics in your advertisement, in your repost, in your cheeky meme? And if so, do you have expressed permission for the use that you're contemplating? If you don't have expressed permission, it doesn't mean you can't use it, but you do need to consider your risk analysis and be thoughtful how you proceed. Thank you, Nat. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. I appreciate your thoughts on right of publicity and how marketers and advertisers should be considering topics like consent. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. As shared in today's episode, the digital age of advertising and marketing has altered the way brands and companies are reaching audiences, and right of publicity issues are becoming more complex as protection varies widely. And it's often unclear under what circumstances consent is required and what is considered to be valid or adequate consent. At Manat, our advertising, marketing, and media team works very closely with our colleagues in entertainment and digital practices in order to provide comprehensive solutions to our clients faced with these ever-evolving issues. I'm very much looking forward to continuing to work with Nat and our leading entertainment team in the future. If you have questions for Nat or myself, or if there are any topics you'd like us to explore on Perfect Balance, please use the form in the episode caption to submit your question or topic. And if you enjoyed today's discussion, please subscribe to Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat to receive updates about future episodes. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.